0: This is episode number 85, Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics with Jeff Warren. Welcome to the Sonia Looney Show. This is a podcast about how to live a high-performance and fulfilled life, spending the categories of mindset, plant-based nutrition, and inspiring stories to help you be better every day
1: the cool thing about life is you get to figure out, how do I want to be in this world? What existential skill group do I want to develop? And that's something everyone should ask themselves, I think, because then you can be intentional about it and start to do activities and practices that can deepen that. Our brains are plastic. You know, our nervous systems are constantly responding and adapting to the world around us. So if we put a mental or existential exercise program in the mix, then it's going to start to change.
0: Welcome or welcome back to the show and happy new year. You guys, I can't believe that it's 2019 already. I remember when it was the millennium back in 2000 and that seems like so long ago. I hope you had a great holiday season. Ours was awesome. We were down in the desert getting in some great mountain biking and some sunshine and I'm about to head back to Kelowna and back to the trainer to get some serious work done for some races coming up. We were in Albuquerque and Sedona for the holidays, and I'm from Albuquerque, New Mexico, and my parents and grandma still live there. And it was awesome to be back because a lot of my old friends were there as well with their kids or their puppies. We brought our puppy, and it was really nice just to get connected again. Speaking of connection, I just want to say thank you so much for being a part of my community and for listening to this show I can't believe that this is already 85 episodes and that I've been doing this for over a year and a half. It's the thing that brings me the most joy out of all the things that I do, getting to talk to such amazing people and being able to share their stories with you. So thank you so much for being a part of that. And speaking of amazing people, I think you're really going to enjoy today's episode with Jeff Warren. I recently asked people on Twitter what new habits they are trying to adopt, especially because it's the new year. 95% of the responses had meditation as one of the habits. I've read a lot of articles on how meditation physically changes the brain, how it's a game changer, not only for performance, but simply for enjoying our lives more and how being consistent with meditation is important, but I've struggled with it. It's definitely something on my new year's resolution list as well. I do it for a week or a couple weeks and then I'll give up and then promptly beat myself up for giving up because I should be doing meditation but eventually I'd find my way back to it, but I just couldn't make the habit stick. I tried to figure out why I was having trouble making meditation a regular part of my routine. And when I believe the benefits of something, I just do it, like my plant-based diet, like my 14-year commitment to my career as a cyclist. So why couldn't I just do meditation? It's because I couldn't tell if it was working or not. After I would do it, I'd say, I just can't tell the difference. So I recently read the book Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics by Jeff Warren and Dan Harris. By read, I mean listened, and I listened to it at 1.25 speed, so that gives you an idea of my personality. Full gas all the time, and that's something that I'm actually trying to change a little bit and find some downtime and relaxation time. I like this book because Dan and Jeff are both narrating the book. It's always really special when the authors narrate their own audiobook. And Jeff even leads meditations after the end of each chapter in the audiobook. I really like Jeff because he was funny and relatable, and he's a meditation expert in the book, and his teaching style really resonated with me. He wasn't all serious and monkey, if that's even a word. I realized I, by being too skeptical, was looking for reasons for meditation not to work. I was excited to also find the 10% Happier meditation app, and it also has different instructors and just seemed like more of a natural fit for me compared to some of the other meditation apps that I've tried. As I delve more into Jeff Warren and stalked his website on the internet, I learned that he has also authored other books. He leads meditation retreats, including meditation retreats in Costa Rica, which I hope I can go to one day. And is the founder of the Consciousness Explorers Club that creates community around meditation. He lives in Toronto, and hopefully, I can make it out there. I was in Toronto actually last year um, in the fall doing a VegFest talk, but that's the only time I've ever been to Toronto. Jeff enjoys exploring consciousness through the mind, through the body, and even socially. His goal is to help people live more fulfilled lives. Jeff's background before he found meditation was actually in journalism, especially on the science side of things. When Jeff went to his first meditation retreat, he said that meditation did not come easily for him. He said, quote, I was and am a distractible, impulsive, overthinking, teeth gnashing worrier. I preferred to think about all the things that could happen in meditation than actually were happening. And that's a quote straight off his website, jeffwarren.org. If you're curious about meditation or you're struggling to make it a regular part of your life, like I am and was, I think you'll really enjoy this podcast. I asked him a lot of questions based on what I learned from Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics. We talked about how to meditate, even if you don't want to focus on the breath, different tools for learning about and accepting the inner workings of our emotions and thoughts, how to find the right practice for you, and even ways to make things like sports or even taking a shower part of your meditation practice. I'm really excited about this episode, and I also wanted to tell you that I'm working on a five or seven day wellness challenge, and I'm currently working on it right now. That's why I don't know how many days exactly it's going to be. But every single day, I'm going to introduce something that you can do. It only will take a couple of minutes to make you feel better and make you healthier. And you can decide if it's something that you want to incorporate regularly into your lives. So make sure you go to my website, sonyalooney.com. And there's a pop-up that will come up and sign up for my newsletter because I'm going to be sending out videos and text every single day during this challenge. And it's all going to be delivered via my newsletter. So make sure you're signed up for that. And yeah, let's get into the show with Jeff Warren. I think you're really going to enjoy this episode. He's really awesome. And make sure you check out his website, jeffwarren.org, because there is so much information on there. And I think you'll really enjoy it. Jeff Warren, welcome to the show.
1: Thanks for having me on, Sonia.
0: It's so fun. We were just talking about how you're just getting back from surfing in Costa Rica like a few minutes ago.
1: (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, I'm in a hotel room here. I'm lucky I get to go down here in a winter. And it's just like a natural paradise. You know, it's so green, it's lush. And there's the oceans right out there. And I was just trying out this new thing called hand planing, where you like, it's like a thing about the size of like a big book that you put on your hand, and then you can actually use to body surf a little bit. So I mean, I I surf as well. But it's just just trying this out. It's pretty great.
0: That's awesome. So are you leading a retreat there? Or is it for vacation?
1: Yeah, so I got this gig with this really cool hotel called the Harmony Hotel in Nasara. And they basically, in exchange for putting me up and feeding me, I just teach meditation three times a week. So Monday morning, Wednesday morning, and Friday morning. And I teach it for guests, for anyone in the local community. It's totally free. And that's the that I've been doing that. I'm kinda like the writer in residence. So I also work on projects here and it's the best. And then I also do retreats down here. Like I got one coming up in first week of March with my friend Scott, who's like a natural movement guy. So we combine the movement and the meditation. but it's fun. It's like a reset for me to get away from just the grind and I feel like I take it with me when I go back to Canada. So
0: yeah, like what's your life like? And you live in Toronto, right?
1: Yeah, well, we just moved. My wife and I moved to a town called Guelph, about an hour and fifty minutes from Toronto and just cuz it's got more green and it's easier easier access to trails and things like that. So our life is, you know, we're just kind of getting in the new groove, but it's good. Like, you know, I like try to go for a hike every day and do my practice and but my happy place is teaching, you know, and unfortunately that's a part of it, but a lot of it is also trying to figure out all the crazy admin with things and <laughs> it's just like, you know.
0: Yeah, the fun parts are running a business.
1: <laughs> yeah, exactly. Awesome. Exactly. So how
0: did you get into meditation?
1: Well, it was sort of by accident. I was researching a book on consciousness, trying to figure out, you know, what is going on in there? Like, what is the different ways we're aware and how can learning with that help us sort of be happier and maximize our life in different ways, I guess. And through that, I started reading a lot about meditation. And I'm like, OK, these guys are clearly the center of the consciousness world. If you want to understand what's really going on on an experiential level, you got to kind of check in with these contemplatives. So I started doing practices. This is back in like 2000. My first retreat is in 2003 or 2004. And then that really changed everything. You know, it was just like, wow, this is going to take my life in a different direction. (laughs) And then, and it did.
0: Awesome. And like, if someone's never gone to a meditation retreat, like I personally haven't, what is it like? Like, what do you do?
1: Well, often when you hear about a retreat, and you haven't done one, it sounds more intimidating than it is because people think, oh, I'm going to be in silence all this time. <laughs> yeah. And how's that going to work? But it actually is very, 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 the silence becomes very nourishing once you kind of learn to make peace with it in a way. So, what you do in a retreat is you, I mean, there's different kinds of retreats. There's some retreats that have more movement, there's some that have more social stuff. But the traditional meditation retreat is it's all in silence. You wake up, you know, pretty early. You might go to a 45 minute sit. And then you might do like 15 minutes of walking and then you might sit again Then you have breakfast. And it's sort of like staged like that through the day, just alternating movement meditation with sitting. And then there might be uh, typically in the evening, the uh, the main teacher might give a talk or something about some theme or something that's going on. And because as you get start to get really settled and quiet, you start to notice all these things about your mind. And basically, when the mind gets quieter, there are fewer problems. And you can't believe how true that is until that starts to happen. So there's talks about kind of the insights that you start to get in the mind and you are right on point there and you follow along and, and you leave there feeling generally a lot more centered and settled and sane and kind of in your life. Now, that's the sort of a typical retreat. Now, my sheets are different. I, I like to have more active stuff because I'm I'm really into movement and so I'm like I'm doing one in Canada and outside of Toronto coming up in like a week and it's got gonna have cross country skiing in it and you know you can make anything a practice so there's all lots of different kinds but that's the kind I described to you as you could say is maybe a basic template.
0: Okay, so not all meditation retreats are silent retreats.
1: No, I mean almost all of them will have a strong component of silence. I mean, and you really want that. Like the reason you have that is most of the time in your life you're just. You know, it's like you're in this continual cacophony of your own thoughts as well as interacting with people and chatting. And and that can really be used to masquerade or to hide a lot of things that are maybe going on that you could address. But you don't because you're kind of like constantly trying to keep yourself busy or keep yourself distracted. So meditation is in a way it's like, OK, it's time to get real. It's kind of time to stop and get quiet and see if you can learn this incredibly hard skill of being OK with yourself. Of being okay with and learning about what's going on under the hood instead of having to constantly be in a non-stop distraction from it
0: yeah it seems like people who are terrified of that like for me that just sounds like the hardest thing ever to not talk <laughs> but it seems like i'm probably somebody that needs it the most because i'm somebody that struggles with being overly busy getting overwhelmed like just always having my foot firmly on the gas and I'm trying to incorporate more meditation and it's something where I've tried and failed and tried and failed, like trying to make it a habit. And when I found the book Meditation for Fidgety Skeptics, it really resonated with me. I've used the Headspace app on and off for years, but there's something about, I don't know what it is, but there's something about how that book was written and also about the meditations that you have in the 10% Happier app that make it seem like some of them are 20 minutes long and typically like in the past I'd see 20 minutes. No way. Like I'm not doing that. And actually I don't know why, but it's, I'm able to to do those and I actually really enjoy those. So yeah. that's awesome. Thank you.
1: Well, I'm very happy to hear that. I mean, we can talk about how, you know, about the question of practice and accessibility, but, and ways to make it more accessible. Cause there, it's really just kind of about just finding what works for you, you know? But I thought maybe I'd just respond to something you said earlier, which is this idea that's very common. You said you'd like to have your foot on the gas and and to always be going and doing. And the first thing to say is like, that's great. You know, it's like that's life is exciting and there's a lot to do. And it's good to have your foot on the gas and to be living life to the fullest. Like I try to do that, too. The issue is what you really are looking for, though, is flexibility to be able to have your foot on the gas and then sometimes not have your foot on the gas. Like you don't want to have to have to have your foot on the gas. You See what I mean? Because if you have to have your foot on the gas, then you're not really free. You're living in this giant condition called having the foot on the gas. Like, I always got to be going. I always got to be doing something. And then, well, what happens when you can't go and do? Like, we're in a situation where you get sick or something happens and you actually got to sit and rest with yourself. Then, all of a sudden, you have no way to manage that. And so then you're in prison. So, the practice of a meditation is basically about freedom. It's about How can you learn to be okay with more and more conditions? So you can just suck the juice out of having the foot on the gas to completely mix our metaphors. (laughs) Mm -hmm. You can get the most out of being active. But when you need to like downshift into being chill, you can do that too. So it's about giving you that flexibility to have the range of possible conditions. And as someone who is very much on the gas all the time, that has been really my struggle. And the reason I came to practice is like, okay, I got to learn how to chill because otherwise I'm going to like just blow a like the hole through the back of my head, like the, the red hot turbine of my go, go, go-ness is going to like burn me out. And actually that did happen. I got burned out.
0: Yeah. and I mean, it's really common. And especially even whenever your passion is your job, and maybe even especially when your passion is your job, like you don't want to stop and because you love it so much. But then you actually burn in your own fire. I had a previous podcast guest and his name is Brad Stolberg and he's awesome. And he calls it the condition of the excitement junkie where you're just pushing and you're so excited all the time. And that actually ends up making you unhappy because you can't slow down.
1: Oh man, I can really relate to that. (laughs) That's totally, that's, I feel like that's how I live very much like a kind of excitement junkie. And, but I don't want to like, at the same time, that was awesome. You know, I loved it. Like I love, there's nothing wrong with being interested in adventure. exploration. I guess the shift that happened for me is I started to understand there's another kind of adventure. There's a kind of internal adventure you can do that's filled with really interesting landscapes and reorientations. And that's just as exciting in its own way. But it's just it's a different kind of adventure. And you have to learn to kind of feel into it a little bit.
0: So I think one of the biggest problems is getting started uh, for people like meditation is talked about all the time. There's science that proves that it makes you it like it changes your brain chemistry. And also, doesn't it also change how your brain is wired? Like it actually has physical changes. So we all know that we know, you know, I should be doing this, it's gonna make my life better. But then it's that thing where it's like, I can't sit down for 10 minutes. So do you have any advice for people on how to actually make time for it, commit to it fully so that they get started?
1: Yeah, well, I don't actually necessarily think that everyone needs to meditate. I think that everyone needs a practice. Hmm. And a a practice is what a practice of practicing how to be in the world in a way that is in line with how you want to be with your intentions, whether it's more compassionate, more focused, more present. We need to be deliberate about that. Because if you're not deliberate about it, then whatever unconscious thing you're doing is just going to get bigger and bigger and bigger. Sometimes we get lucky our unconscious patterns are the ones that are that are taking us in the right direction. But most of us have both a mix of kind of good and bad behaviors, you know? So I think everybody needs a practice where they're intentional in that way. Meditation is a wonderful way to do it, like a seated still meditation, because it's the simplest kind of practice in a way. You could say it's like the mind in a pure culture. Like you can do practices in movement, in running, in nature, and all other kinds of things. And I can talk a little bit about that in a second. But because there's so much more going on there, it's easy to just be distracted by that stuff and to fool yourself and say, oh yeah, that's my meditation. And it is maybe a little bit your meditation and that it gets you chill and who knows what else. But is it really, really, really developing the skills or the qualities of being that you really want? It might, but I mean, I'm just saying that it's sometimes a little easier to fool yourself with that. So that's why I enjoy a seated practice in stillness. So what I would say is, it's important to have a practice and it's important to know what the practice is doing. So in my case, the skills that I really am interested in and I talk about are specific skills of concentration, of clarity, of equanimity, and of kind of friendliness. And those are, I can talk about each one and what how they work and what they look like. And it's pretty straightforward about how to make it deliberate in a seated practice and stillness. But you can also apply it to anything else in life, to your mountain biking, to your running, to your nature walks to hanging out with your dog. You know, it's just about being intentional that when that skill is getting booted up. So does that make sense?
0: Yeah, I think that's awesome because it gives people freedom to realize like, I don't have to sit down. That's not the only way to do it. And a lot of times people will say, well, mountain biking is my meditation. But you mentioned that you might say that, but it might actually not be true. And I used to say my mountain biking was my meditation. And then I realized that when I start riding, I don't have other distractions, but then my mind is the treadmill starts ramping up and ramping up and I have all my best like ideas on the bike, but I'm being distracted and carried down these paths where sometimes I don't even realize I've climbed a hill. So that's the opposite of meditation where you're being carried away on the waves of your thoughts.
1: Yeah, totally. That's really interesting. I mean, how I would put it is I think a lot of sports, first of all, sports are phenomenal like and physical activity are phenomenal for developing all those skills in different contexts and i think the great athletes and the great sports people who are really really get their sport often just spontaneously drop into the qualities so one of the qualities is concentration which you're already kind of talking about concentration is the is the zone so it's when you're focused and you're in flow and what it's really about is when all of your faculties converge into one activity. So if you're mountain biking, you are mountain biking. Your mind is not in five different things, like what you're describing. It's like you are right there, you're with the bike, you're feeling every bump, your attention is converged on it. When that happens, we get very blissful, like the body is happy, the mind is happy, that's the kind of, that's what concentration is, and that's the classic thing that gets booted up as a muscle group in sport or in a physical activity. So if you're doing your sport and your mind and you're thinking about your laundry list, you're not really developing that concentration. You might be developing other things, but I would say that if you really want to make it even more, a deeper concentration practice, practice then noticing that that's happened, that you're off thinking about your laundry list and coming back to being super in the present moment with your body and kind of seeing if you can do that. So that's the the concentration skill. And now all these skills work together. The clarity skill is the clarity of like being aware of every little subtle thing happening in your experience. So most of the time we're kind of on the surface and we're kind of just aware of a little bit of our thoughts, or we're barely even aware of that. We're kind of just, you know, bipping from one thing to another. The clarity is you start to see how you're getting pulled into different directions. Oh, isn't that interesting? You start to notice other little ways that are other little things that are going on in your experience. And you just kind of zoom in. It's like just dialing up the resolution dial. So you get more aware of more things going on. That's not something you need for every practice, but it's an interesting life skill because it leads to more. Just wisdom and more insight and more kind of sane responses around things the equanimity skill if you think about it in a sports thing equanimity is this is really cool it's the skill of non-resistance so it's like when you're really concentrated and in the zone and say you're running or you're doing some other kind of endurance sport can you do a thing where you kind of just like loosen up loosen inside and just let yourself almost glide through the world like there's this sort of smoothness where you're not fighting internally with yourself. Everything's kind of coming together. You're not fighting with the world around you. It's like there's a kind of quality of smoothness that comes into it. And some athletes will recognize this, you know, that you can draw this, this kind of place you drop into or everything just seems to line up. You know, have you had that experience?
0: Definitely. And a lot of my training has been indoors lately. And you can tell me if this isn't correct, but I've been working on perception of pain and accepting and welcoming the pain because whenever you're putting yourself through a really hard workout, the alarm bells are going off like this hurts, this hurts. Oh my gosh, like how long can I do this for? Like all these things start coming up in your head. So what I've been doing is closing my eyes and just saying, I accept this pain and it's fine. And that's actually been really helpful.
1: Wow. So that's a super deep practice. That is exactly what I'm talking about. That's the practice of equanimity. Equanimity is the practice of accepting exactly what's happening in the moment. So if discomfort is there, instead of subtly fighting against it, you just accept, okay, there's discomfort there. And that paradoxically makes the discomfort easier to deal with. Similarly, it's like, so the practice of accepting the moment means you're not subtly trying to create friction or fighting with it. So that's how I sometimes I talk about the opposite, about the smoothness. If you've got that smoothness, there's a sense in which you're accepting everything in the moment and just responding to it. So that's it's the same skill. And this is a skill that like there is no greater skill in life that I can think of. You know, maybe compassion and loving kindness. Those are awesome skills, too. But the skill of being present to what's actually going on is the foundation of sanity. It's the foundation of real connection. And as you go deeper, and deeper into it, you just start to notice that there's a rich and beautiful connection with your life that you're more and more connected to. So it's the, also the skill of fulfillment and the skill of meaning. <laughs> it's its pretty beautiful.
0: Yeah. And I wanted to take equanimity away from the athlete exercise part and bring it into our daily life because I've noticed this with myself and with a lot of my friends is you get perturbed by something. Something didn't go right or something has happened. Now you feel stressed about this situation that you probably can't control. And it's often the unknown that makes us feel the most stressed because we can't do anything about it. But then instead of accepting that, which would be the equanimity thing, our brain just starts going, well, what if this and what if that? And like you just get wound up into this this frenzy of thoughts and it's really hard to come back to baseline. So how can people practice not letting that take them away and stopping the rumination?
1: Well, I mean, you said it. It's like, I guess that's why I think it's valuable to have a seated practice or a, a period of time when you're deliberately practicing the skills, because that's where you, it's easiest to get a sense of the flavor or the taste of what equanimity is like. And then you have a place where you're deliberately practicing it and it starts to float into the rest of your life. And then in the rest of the life, you just start to notice wow, I'm not really being equanimous right now. I'm not being accepting of the situation. I'm in this kind of little fighting with it, like fighty McFighty. I'm sitting here, like gripping on my teeth and trying to jam and fight it when this is just what's happening. So you start to notice and you get better and better in the moment of just noticing when you're trying to get fixated or trying to control or getting uptight and you just let go. And then you notice you're getting fixated uptight and you let go. And I should just say here, because a lot of people get misunderstand this, when I'm talking about accepting, this is kind of a subtle point I want to make. I don't mean that you're accepting objective circumstances necessarily. There may be a circumstance that needs to be changed. What I mean is that you accept that it's happening right now and it's having an impact on you. That's the kind of acceptance. When you do that, then you actually save all this energy because you're no longer fighting against the reality of the situation. You're allowing it to be what it is. Then that saves all this energy and then it allows you to make a more appropriate response to change objective circumstances. Does that make sense?
0: Totally. And I think that one of the fears that people have is losing their edge. And I think this this equanimous mindset is maybe the number one thing that people are worried that they're losing their edge because they're like, well, then I'm not going to care about anything and then everything's going to be cool. I'm going to be mellow and I'm not going to be as driven or, or even like some people are driven by anger by the chip on their shoulder. So yeah, I think that this is this practice, especially the equanimous equanimity portion of meditation is, is so valuable. And it's for me, I would say that's the hardest one.
1: Yeah. Well, not just for you, for me too. For everybody.
0: (laughs) Like some people might struggle with like the clarity part or the compassion part. And yeah, do you mind listing those six mental muscles again?
1: Sure. Well, there's different ways of talking about different muscle groups, I guess you could say. The ones that I, my teacher Shinzen Young, who's a really great meditation teacher, really smart he really focuses on concentration, clarity, and equanimity. And those are ones I also focus on. But I also think uh, friendliness is really important. Compassion, like this, whatever you want to call it, like gratitude, some kind of positive piece that kind of like overlays life with just more goodness. You know, there's no two ways about it. Like when you start to practice having slightly friendlier responses to people and being grateful for what you have and and having compassion and all these simple things, you know, life gets richer and more beautiful. I mean, it's pretty straight ahead. (laughs) And then another one I would say is enjoyment, which is related to friendliness, but it has to do with deliberately choosing to find things enjoyable, especially simple things, like simple pleasures, like, you know, even right now, if you're listening to this kind of breathing and noticing that every time you let go, when you breathe out, there's a kind of a nice little relaxing and that's kind of nice. Or whatever simple pleasure is there in your experience, this capacity to appreciate and enjoy, I would say is another important one. There's others, you know, the mindfulness piece, like I think that's connected a lot to the clarity, but other people define mindfulness as just remembering. It's like, oh, just remembering to be aware, come back into this moment, reset, this is where I am. That's skill. You know, and it's like, and then that combines the clarity and the equanimity. And so, and I guess the question, but I would ask people is like, what skill is important for you? You know, those are just some that I've found to be important for me. And there's some of the classics that are talked about within a Buddhist context and other contexts, but kind of like the cool thing about life is you get to figure out how do I want to be in this world? What existential skill group do I want to develop? And That's something everyone should ask themselves, I think, because then you can be intentional about it and start to do activities and practices that can deepen that. I mean, that's the plasticity you were talking about. We, our brains are plastic. You know, our nervous systems are constantly responding and adapting to the world around us. So if we put a mental or existential exercise program in the mix, then it's going to start to change.
0: So I think that whenever people actually, sit, so now we've gotten to getting started, they're sitting down, maybe they're doing a walking meditation or something, but then that critical voice comes in of, I'm not good at this. I'm not doing it right. This isn't actually doing anything. Like I can't feel anything. So how should people deal with those thoughts that come up?
1: Yeah, well, first of all, they should feel uh, okay <laughs> because everyone happens has those. So they're in good company. Like you even know, you, right? Those. Like, Oh yeah, yeah, man, all the time I get thoughts. I mean, I don't have the thought anymore that this isn't working because I know it's not about creating an effect. You see, Hmm. meditation is about how you are in your life. So the place to look whether a practice is working is after you've done it for a few weeks is like, well, what is your life like? How are your relationships? Are you feeling more connected? It's not about creating a particular effect when you're sitting. And that took me a while to get my head around because sometimes you sit and you feel really relaxed and blissful. And lot times you sit and it's a disaster, you know, it's just like freaking fists of fury going on in your head and uh, you know, there's just no end to it. So you got to start to get relaxed about that and just say, okay, that's just what's happening right now. Even then you'll get benefit in the sense that you're practicing being okay with that. That's the equanimity. You're practicing getting distracted and coming back. That's the concentration. You're practicing noticing that that happened. That's the clarity. So you're still building up the muscle group. So having that Look, from the beginning, it's called that. And that's actually one of the skills that people talk about is a skill of just kind of like confidence or faith of saying, you know what, I'm just going to trust that this practice, that the fact that billions of really smart Buddhists or millions of them have been doing it for generations says that there might be something here. I'm going to trust that there might be something to it and sit down and you have the patience and the maturity to like be OK with your own learning curve, including the fact that it could be a blender of neurotic thinking at the beginning That's going to get you a long way. And then it's just a question of knowing that mind wanders, you bring it back. That's the workout. Every time you do that, it's like a rep for the mind. So not if you can normalize that, then that can be less of a problem. And then finally, there's all kinds of little tricks you can do in terms of finding the right thing that works for you. So some people like working with the breath, for example, and they can get really absorbed in it, but some just find it kind of like wigs them out. So that's why I teach, actually, if you want, I have a little free, I have all these free meditations on my website, and one of them is called The Right Practice, and it kind of guides people through a whole little exploratory curriculum of, hey, check out sound, check out the body, check out breath, check out slight movement. Which of these are you naturally a little bit more drawn to? Because if you find one that you're a little bit more curious about, then play to that, and then you can start to play to your strengths. So there's all kinds of tricks.
0: Is that what the community practice activation document is on your website or is that something different?
1: No, that's a little different. I'm super proud of that document. That's also free. It's like I started a nonprofit called the Consciousness Explorers Club that was about trying to basically it was a local practice group in Toronto. It's still going. So if you're in the area, you can come by. And But it was also really from the beginning, kind of the intention was to kind of inspire other groups wherever they are just to get together with your friends and practice together and share together and be in a kind of non-hierarchical vibe where there's not some, you know, guru on a pedestal. We're all doing this together, so that's what that is. So that's available for free on my site and on the, on the Conscious Explorers Club site. It tells you kind of how to guide a practice and how to like set up a group and what that looks like. The thing I'm talking about is if you, I think if if you go to guided meditations and talks, it's the top one, and it's just a little. And I'm going to try to turn it into like a little PDF or something, but it just kind of gives a little bit of a talk about gives you context around practice and what we're doing. And then it guides people through a practice and they can kind of choose for themselves. But you know, you don't even need to do that. It's more like try a few different teachers, try a few different practices, see which ones click. And then you can either choose to stay with a guided practice or you can just take it on your own. I mean, they both work fine. It's just kind of a up to you.
0: Yeah. And I think that something that people think is that you have to meditate for 10 minutes a day in order for it to make any type of difference. And something that I really liked about your message is no, like you can do one minute a day and that's going to help. So why is that 10 minute mark kind of a standard whenever you're looking at different apps or you're reading different things?
1: There is no standard. It's just like everyone's got a different nervous system. But it is true that with meditation, the more you do it, the more it sinks in. But that doesn't mean doing it necessarily in one sitting. It's all about consistency and then and doing it as kind of tapping into the taste as often as possible. So I think it's more important to do like two 15 minute sits a day than it would be to do one solid one hour, or like three 15 minute sits a day, or or five five minute sits, or whatever they are, you know, like little they don't have to be sits. Like the more you plug into the skill, the more it bleeds out into the life to the life afterwards, and the more eventually your whole life just becomes a practice. I mean, that's where it's all going. But that said, some people find that this a one big, an hour chunk for them or a half hour chunk is, is their sweet spot. So you got to kind of experiment a little bit. But I think the most important message is that if you set it up as being like, oh, I got to do this much, then you may never do it. Because it's like you one time you miss it, then you're like, ah, oh, screw it. I'm no good at this. And you just throw the whole thing out. And that would be a bad move. <laughs> because my friend, you got your whole life ahead of you, man. You may as well start to work on this shit because it's good stuff. So I think doing it under... Like, just saying to people, look, you can do it. If you got one minute, do it for one minute. If you got 10 minutes, do it for 10 minutes. It's just a more empowering message. And then it, it helps people work with where they're at.
0: Yeah, I love that because I find that with starting a habit, the hardest part is like thinking, I have to do this much. So for me, what's been helpful is saying, I'm going to do a minute, but then it always turns into longer because just the sitting exactly. down and creating that time, or like with core work, like I'm terrible about doing core work as a cyclist. It's like, okay, I'm going to do five sit ups or 30 second plank and like creating something where you're going to be able to do it no matter what, like say you get in the shower. And when the shower is warming up, you just stand there and take five breaths. And like that counts. And then that helps you recognize how good that feels. And then wanting to incorporate that into your day.
1: Exactly. That's great. Actually, funnily enough with the shower, I often do a meditation in the shower, but I do I put the cold water on. And that's the perfect place to practice equanimity It's just sit there and try to let the cold go right through you. And you're like, that is equanimity. And so you just start that way, then maybe turn it up to hot. But like you can. Yeah, you can definitely pepper your day with practices. Uh, but I will also I should probably say one thing, which is that my interest is in really empowering people to try to find a, a practice that works for them. And work and meeting them where they're at and trying and including doing short practices And that's all I think valuable. But there is something deeply mysterious and cool about doing longer practices. As you start to develop a taste for meditation, you start to see that it leads into this really beautiful and kind of mysterious place and that these guys and these women and these people who dedicate their life to practicing, they change themselves in a really profound and deep way. And that's real. And they can come to levels of happiness and fulfillment that are, by our standards, spectacular, you know, they're off the charts. And that that's very real. So just to honor that these people who are really bearing down and doing much longer practices, that's a whole path too, man. And uh, it's worth exploring, too.
0: I wanted to ask you about how you can focus on something other than the breath in meditation, because in meditation, people talk about like, okay, count your breaths, you know, do all those things. But I actually really like focusing on other things and having that permission from me was helpful. So what I think about is like how warm my hands feel on my legs. And like that feeling helps me stay anchored during a meditation. What are some other things that people can think about or, or focus on if they don't want to focus on the breath?
1: Pretty much anything in experience can be a meditation object. Anything in reality that's happening to you. But there are certain things that are just easier than others. So you can work with your thoughts as a meditation object. You know, you can work with sharp sounds happening around you, like barking dogs and things. But as a general rule, the things that tend to be easier to develop concentration with are things that are have a kind of consistent consistency. So, for example, um, the feeling of warmth in your hands, because there's kind of if you you can keep connecting to that feeling and it's sort of this vibratory warm feeling Or the feeling of the breath, because that's continually there, although it gets more and more subtle as you practice. Or like a drone sound, background radiator, or a heater, or like an air conditioner, just the hum. Or the back of the eyelids, just looking at the back of the eyes, the kind of swirly, lava-lampy, guns-felt, kind of trippy (laughs) situation there. So those kinds of things are the sound of running water, you know. Like those things are, all those are good. But really anything. Like I often just work with like a point in the body like I'll just meditate on my hara, like this point in the belly, in like below the belly button, just this like this warrior thing, like you're a samurai and just like plugging your attention to this point or a point in your heart, you know, or you try to hold a feeling of caring for somebody or you just, you can pay attention to your whole posture sitting. You just imagine you're a mountain and you kind of have a visualization or a, an embodied sense of yourself as a mountain and then that's what you're holding as an object. So all these things are great. You know, it's just about, What's going to click for you? And you kind of, so doing a little bit of experimenting is, was really helpful.
0: Yeah. And I wanted to ask you about different types of meditation because I've also heard of transcendental meditation and I'm still not really sure what that is compared to the mindfulness meditation. Can you tell people what that means and me?
1: (laughs) Yeah, no problem. Well, I mean, I'm not an expert in it, but it's another form of meditation. And this, in that case, it's a meditation where the object is a mantra. So it just means it's a phrase that you're repeating in your head. And the more you repeat it again and again, and eventually it becomes kind of like it almost like the phrase starts to go on automatic and it becomes something that's very soothing for people and it helps them get concentrated. And one of the values of a mantra is it sometimes like gobbles up the whole bandwidth of the thinking mind. So because you're using thinking to you're paying attention in a sense to a thought, this mantra again and again, it can be easier to get concentrated. So some people really like it. I guess that's the kind of like a pretty positive gloss on it. It has its own kind of like spiritual stuff around it. Like there's a kind of wrapper, and that has a kind of whole worldview attached to it that some mm-hmm. people don't like so much, but some people really do. And, and it's not like Buddhism doesn't have a worldview. They all have, everything has a worldview around it. I mean, the fashion now is to try to present all this in very secular, straight ahead way. And I try to do that. But, you know, even I, for me, there's a view, which is that this stuff is positive for you, that there's such a thing as a deep end of practice. You know, everyone has a view, <laughs> But that view is one that, you know, you should just be aware of it. That's all. And see if it's like what you're into.
0: And what about people who fall asleep? I was so proud of my dad. Like he, I was like, you got to try meditation. And he did. And he said, every time I try, I just fall asleep. So how can people prevent falling asleep?
1: Well, I mean, that's kind of one of the, they had they talk about the hindrances in a practice around classic challenges. And that's a classic one. Everyone gets the sleepiness at some point or another. Sometimes it's just telling you that what you need to do is have a nap, <laughs> you know, because you're overtired but in general some of the things people do is they open their eyes they stand up while they meditate you know they take a bunch of oxygenating breaths to kind of oxygenate the body a little bit sitting up straight perching at the edge of your chair these are all little things you can do or just even like taking a bunch of deep breaths and actually going for a bit of a run and getting yourself energized and come back to it you know you can do those things but you know try them out i kind of try to do some of those but i also sometimes think wow if i'm really really tired My body's telling me that probably not getting enough sleep, or that I'm meditating at the wrong time. It's hard to meditate in the middle of the afternoon. You know, for me, I'm just like, I I can't meditate then. I'm too tired.
0: That's weird for me. I can't meditate first thing in the morning like cuz I want to just like go back to sleep. And in the middle of the afternoon is actually the best time for me because I'm alert. So, yeah, it's it's so funny and I think Perfect. that's a great point that a lot of people hear about, oh, the morning routine and I have to meditate in the morning, but the morning's not always good for people. So, having the freedom to know you can do it at any time is important.
1: Yeah, like it's really valuable to know your and most people probably have an intuitive sense of their own circadian rhythm. You know what's your circadian profile? For some people, they get a big dip in the afternoon. Others, not so much like you, you know, and some people are late, like kind of tired in the morning, but then they kind of wake up late. Other people ready to go in the morning. So the best time to meditate is, you know, in terms of a seated practice is you definitely want to sit when you're alert because it's about keeping that balance of alertness and relaxation. That's the main, in a sense, you could say that the big skill, it's like learning how to ride that line where you're clear and alert and awake, but yet you're totally chill and calm at the same time.
0: I wanted to ask you about two of the meditations in the 10% Happier app that you guide. One of them, and this was also in the book, was RAIN and the acronym for RAIN. And I really like that meditation. So can you talk to people about that?
1: Yeah, well, I mean, that's an extremely deep meditation. And it's just being explicit about something that goes on anyway in a lot of meditations. RAIN is an acronym. It stands for Recognize, Accept investigate and non-identify some people say nurture for the end which is also a totally great way to to do it and it's a way to work with any kind of sensation in your experience but it's particularly helpful when you're having challenging emotions and challenging thoughts and it's a way to kind of like you know work with that to help metabolize some of that and help it move on so the basics are i mean i really laid out in the book and in the app but the basics are you start by recognizing, so that's the R. And that means that, you know, often we're cruising around our life and we don't even really realize that we're in a bad mood, you know, or that we're kind of like uncomfortable or we're just a little bit irritable or whatever it is. Like it's there, but it's kind of subtle and under the surface. So when you get still in a practice, you stop, you know, you breathe out, you relax. In this practice, I, I get people to focus on a home base first, a come place that's comfortable, you know, like maybe their breath or somewhere that just, they chill. And then when they're ready, when they feel comfortable, they can kind of do a little exploration. Okay, what's going on in my experience right now? Oh, yeah, actually, there's kind of this background feeling of being bummed out that I've had all day. So that's the recognition. And then the accept is saying, okay, that's what's happening. That is what I'm going to actually accept and let myself feel this. It's amazing how little we let that happen. We don't let ourselves feel how we feel because we feel ashamed that we don't feel perfect all the time or we're embarrassed that we feel sad or we're ashamed that we feel angry or whatever it is. So you're saying, okay, it's time to make this mature move and accept that this is how we feel. So that's the accept. And then the investigate is, well, where do I feel that? Like every, if you're having an emotional response in some way, almost always there's some subtle part of the body that's being activated. So it could be a little bit of sadness around the eyes or tightness in the jaw if you're mad or, you know, anxiousness or excitement in the chest or heartbreak in the heart, you know, or a feeling in the gut, like of dread or who knows what, like, I'm just, those are examples of kind of how it comes up for me, but everyone's a bit different. But you kind of investigate through the the midline of your body, well, what, what's going on in there? And then is this related to this? And it's just this kind of gentle noticing and opening and feeling. And the investigation is sort of like you're you're actually expanding the bandwidth of what you're accepting, letting all this stuff be there. So it's just kind of like, coming up in you and it's allowed to kind of go through you you know you just i imagine that i'm like almost going backwards and it's kind of going forward all the sensations and the feelings are just sort of moving very slowly like the slow drift and i just let it happen and while being aware and then the non-identify is kind of the last move is just sort of saying like letting go not trying to grab onto it and make a story out of it but just letting it recognize that your feelings your thoughts all of it's just part of nature and you're just actually part of nature. You're part of this big natural process that's kind of rising and falling. And you're like a giant lung being breathed by all of these systems. And you're just, and you let that be the case. It's like you're getting out of your own way. And that's a deeply freeing thing. And what can happen is we do all these together is that people find that all that emotional feeling can sort of, it's like it expresses itself and then it can be metabolized. And then we can move on and reset. That's kind of the ideal. And that's why... And that's what we're doing in a lot of meditation practices. We're kind of updating ourselves, letting everything express itself so we can come back into the moment and not be kind of hanging on to stuff. And there's often this wonderful feeling of release or of opening. Yeah. And the last thing I'll say about that is if you're doing this pra- kind of a practice and you're working with challenging stuff, sometimes you do that and it just moves, opens up and moves through you and it kind of passes. And that's great. Other times it actually gets more intense and that can also be fine. You can kind of stay with that if you like, or what I like to tell people is you can pace yourself. So if it gets a bit intense, like all of a sudden the sadness gets really sad or the anger really comes up or the energy comes up, whatever it is, you just go, you know what? Okay, I'm going to just back off a little bit, go back to my home base, which is maybe noticing your hands or noticing your breath and just get chill there for a bit. And then when you feel ready, you kind of go back into the feeling. And that way you can kind of just pace yourself. Because sometimes it can just get a bit overwhelming. And this is a way to work smart.
0: Yeah, I think that the hardest part with the accept part of the rain is trying not to fix it. And for me, when I've been doing that in my practice, I realized, and something I didn't realize before this was, I kind of walk around with low level anxiety all the time. Like I'm a happy person, like everything like that. But I realized that there's this low level anxiety and it was just saying, okay, like I accept this. And then later it's like, well, what is this anxiety about? And it's, I'm not enough. And that, that actually goes down the path of why do I feel the need to work so hard? It's because I'm trying to prove that I'm enough, but then some things can't just be fixed. So just like accepting that that's where you are right now, instead of trying to fix it, it has been really helpful for me, but it's also been really hard.
1: You're pretty awesome, man. That's, <laughs> That's where it's at. You know, you just said it all right there. You know, that's uh, I appreciate your vulnerability, and I'm the same way. That's when I started practicing. I started noticing that I had this exact same thing—a low-level kind of anxiousness about needing to kind of get everything controlled and right. And it's because I felt like, I guess, in some way, I didn't feel that safe or like I belonged in some way. And so, what you're describing is—it's called the progress of insight. It's as you start to do a practice, especially a mindfulness practice, you start to get insights about all these fundamental things you're doing. And it begins with accepting it. That's like the sane part saying, okay, well, I'm just going to, I can see this is happening and it's, it may be uncomfortable to accept, but I got to begin with being real. And so you accept it. And then after you accept it, it can still be there for a long time, but it's the beginning of beginning to metabolize it. It's beginning. And it's this process, you know, of like of coming back to it in a sensitive and caring way, noticing when you're feeling that way, having compassion, that's the nurture part, compassion for yourself, letting it be there. And you develop more and more insight around it. And eventually some of those energies start to basically discharge and you start to come into more peace, but it's a progress. And sometimes it requires other kinds of interventions. Like, you know, for me, it it involved going to a trauma therapist because I had a lot of physical injuries in my life with broken neck and broken shoulders. and, And a lot of that pain and like stuff was all stuck in there. Like my body was traumatized and. I would find it in meditation and it was too big to deal with only from practice. So I would go to somebody to help me kind of work with those energies. So if you find like a a body-based, like a somatic trauma type expert, they're really good for releasing that stuff or a therapist or who knows what, but other modalities can help. Um,
0: Yeah. And I think this is a great segue into the, the next part that I wanted to talk about was the compassion meditation. And I've had just for the listeners, Dr. Kristen Neff, who is a self-compassion researcher, she's created the self-compassion scale. And in her book, they do talk about self-compassion meditation. And one of yours is you say, may I be well. And I really love that one because may I be well, isn't just about like physical, like, oh, do I have a cold? It's like, may I feel good and grounded and happy in my life? And I've actually started using that on a daily basis. Whenever I start feeling like wound up about something, I just say, no, like, may I be well? And then I feel myself relax. (laughs)
1: That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, compassion makes the world go round. And it's as true for your relationship to yourself as it is for other people, you know? And we often have a double standard where we're like, oh yeah, okay, I can understand how it's important to be friendly to other people, but we're brutal to ourselves, you know? Really harsh, really just your inner critic, just cutting ourselves all the time. And it's like, when you do that, you create suffering in yourself. And that actually is taken away from your capacity to be with other people. So the most compassionate thing you can do for other people is to include yourself in the compassion. And it's just about finding a practice, a way of doing that. doesn't sound cheesy to you. And you know, that sounds real to you. And so it's, and so I often tell people, you know, like find a phrase that works for them. Like, may I be well works for you. It works for me too. Other people, it might just be like, you know, something different, like you're okay, or what's up, dude, or I don't know, whatever, like something (laughs) that just that feels that it's like you kind of got to find your own voice in it. But again, it's something you can play around a little bit with. But I can't overstate how important it is to when you're having a hard time in your life and it's going to happen all the time. We're all we all have hard times just to take a moment. What happens often to us is instead we just go, we get mad about the fact that we're having a hard time. So it's like we're, we're adding insult to injury or we, or, we're, you know, who knows what, we just build on it. But instead, of just taking a moment of noticing, oh, well, yeah, things aren't that, like I'm bummed out right now or I'm like, or I'm just really frustrated about something. And just taking a moment to go, it's okay. You know, it's like, it's all right, man. You know, things don't have to be perfect to kind of have a little bit of like a, almost a parental caring attitude to yourself. It sounds cheesy for some people, but it took me a while to get it. But when you do that, it can make a difference. It can actually make it so it goes away a little better. And after a while, you start to have the same open, caring kind of paternal or or parental attitude to yourself as you do to everyone. You know, just this thing of like you're holding space for whoever's around you, including yourself. And that's like the presence that comes from a practice. And it's a and it's deep and you feel it, you know, it's like the grandmother energy you feel from solid grandmas and grandpas or parents when they've got that and people in your life, you know, it's like, okay, can I do that for myself? Cause it's worth trying to explore how that can happen.
0: Yeah. I liked it in that meditation, how you said like, imagine yourself as like an upset little like kid or, or something. And then you can comfort that like you would another little kid or an animal or something. And that, that was a really great visualization.
1: Yeah. And you can keep it private too. You don't have to tell other people you're doing this. You know, it's like, <laughs> this is your, this is your inner world. If you want to pretend you're just a little co- cuddly chipmunk and you just, get, it's like, you can do whatever you want, man. It's like, <laughs> this, it's your life. I mean, it, it's all about whatever helps.
0: So, so the book that I, I haven't finished 10% happier yet, which I know is just by Dan Harris, but the meditation for fidgety skeptics, you guys went on a tour in a bus all over the country. Like, like had you had like a, a meditation booth but was it hard to take on the role of for skeptics part because I mean I don't really know how you would be able to do that if you yourself don't feel like you're a skeptic. I don't know if that's a, a que- that's not really a question. It's like okay, the book is for skeptics. So do you feel like people are coming up to you and they're just like, "Yeah, right. Like who's this guy?" and how do you accept that and how do you portray it in a way to those people so that they can kind of relax and get their shoulders out of their ears and not be like, Oh, I'm not tough. (laughs) You know, some people think they're not tough if they meditate or if they talk about their feelings.
1: Well, that's a good question. I mean, when we talk about for fidgety skeptics, the skepticism we were talking about is more about people who are skeptical that it could work for them, you know? Mm -hmm. So when we were going around the country, we weren't actually trying to sell meditation to anybody. We were, connecting to pre-existing groups like cops and the military and like social workers and like formerly incarcerated teens and and neuroscientists like all these different people who were actually already doing the practices and were interested in learning and deepening it and had confronted particular challenges and were wondering how to work with those challenges so that was very much the intention of the book and I love working with so to answer your question I actually like working with both kinds of skeptics so, the first kind of skeptic is the skeptic that I, this isn't going to work for me. You know, that's very normal because that's where I was at. Like, I like trying to help people connect to the range of possibilities in a practice to help them find one. Because I think most people can. I think, like I said at the beginning, I think everyone could use the practice. It's just about finding the practice that works. And I want to try to help people to do that. So that's my fun place, you know. But the other kind of skepticism is also one that I I like working with because I came from science journalism, you know, I was a journalist and particularly interested in science and, and I was very suspicious of spiritual stuff. And so I'm very conversant in that kind of an outlook. And I find my, I'm very comfortable in that kind of secular worldview. And I like, you know, when I meet people who are skeptical about it, first of all, I'm not trying to convince them. I say, you know, it's like, you have a right to be skeptical. You should check it out for yourself. But I just, I just kind of point out what's happened in my experience, and I give them a kind of overview of what some people are finding, and then I, I make that invitation. What's interesting from the point of view, that second point of view of skepticism is people often want to know what the evidence is. They want to know what the objective evidence is, the science, and there's some good science about that now. That's It's interesting. But the domain of practice isn't the domain of objective circumstances. It's the domain of subjective experience. So nobody can tell you what's going to happen in your practice, except for you and your own experience. There is no way around that. And the evidence of a practice working is often a lot of it is that that's the the data it's drawing from is how you feel inside, which may, there may be objective measures for that. Certainly people on the outside of your life might notice that you're feeling happier or whatever it is, but that it's always the internal piece. So you kind of got to Shift into appreciating this other dimension of reality—the re- the dimension of our own inner experience—as being something that's worth paying attention to. And that's actually something that science is just coming around to. You know, I was—I wrote about consciousness, and re- originally with consciousness, people just talked about behaviors. They didn't even talk about the consciousness stuff at all. It was just about that was behaviorism, and then it was just pick okay, up. Now they could talk about the brains, but now people are talking about subjective experience and first-person experience and the importance of that, and so you're having this, you're witnessing this really interesting moment in science and in reason where people are saying, Oh, wow, we actually got to start taking, understanding this whole other data set, this data set of inner experience. And how do we do that in a way that's rigorous? And I think meditation is one way to do that. So yeah,
0: I really liked it because I had tried meditation, as I mentioned, and I, I quit because I was like, I don't feel any different. I don't think this is working. Like, how do I even know this is doing anything? but I don't know. For some reason, after reading that book, I feel like it's doing something. So I don't know if it's like I convinced myself and I accepted that like skeptical people or questioners. Once you make up your mind about something, it's a lot easier to move forward and even to see the benefits because sometimes we decide in advance, like this isn't going to work. I don't believe in this. And it really might be working, but you're choosing not to let it work.
1: Yeah, you basically every five minutes you spout off some really awesome piece of wisdom, Sonny. It's hilarious because that's, you just nailed something that's a very subtle truth that also is something you start to notice in practice, which is how much your expectations shape your experience. And if we have an expectation, just like you said, if you have an expectation that like, oh, this isn't going to work for me, well, you're basically stacking the deck against yourself. Whereas if you, I mean, it's not like, unlike a relationship, you know, I'm sitting here, my wife's sitting right next to me here. And it's like, I remember the moment when I was like, I love this person. I really love this person. And I had some idea in my head, you know, of maybe what the perfect relationship was looking like was going to look like. And it wasn't quite this. It was a different thing that I couldn't have anticipated. And when I just completely accepted it and made a total commitment to her, the relationship got 100 times better. But it wouldn't have happened until I made that commitment. It was like the commitment released something that then opened up an ability for us to be with each other in this new way and be kind of real with each other in a new way. And it's not unlike that with the practice. You know, it's like something happens when you commit. And so there's that. That's true. And then the other side is we still have to be patient. You know, you got to there's going to be ups and downs. And the big picture of a practice is just being mature about it and saying that's human nature. That's life. And, you know, you stay with it. And then eventually the evidence becomes your life.
0: Yeah. And it's like if you miss a day or you miss a week, like don't quit, like just get back in whenever you can.
1: Exactly. There's an expression in practice, begin anew. Every moment is a new opportunity to start. And like, I fall off the bandwagon all the time. Like I just came off the bandwagon. You know, I was on a, I was kind of like flopped off and I was gone. I was on this, you know, I'm here. I am touring for this book about meditation. I wasn't even meditating that much myself. I'm like, what a fraud I am. (laughs) But then I was, you know, I, then I started getting back into it through more of movement. And then that's just how it goes.
0: Awesome. Is there anything that you want to leave people with before we take off?
1: You know, I would just encourage people to look at where they find joy in their life right now. Like, what are you doing when you're finding joy in your life right now? And because that can be the basis of your practice, you know, right there. And then just being a little bit more deliberate about like letting yourself be devoted to it. That's the concentration about being a little bit more deliberate about really surrendering fully to this thing you enjoy. So you're just smoothly moving into it. But being a little bit more deliberate about finding the appreciation, the the enjoyment, the, the friendliness in it, these things will change that into an even deeper, more powerful practice. Like you don't have to go and sit on a mountain or do anything that even I'm – any suggestion that I'm making here – just turn your joy into your practice, and make it even more deep that and then just fucking go for it and try to help other people.
0: <laughs> awesome. I love it. I'll put everything in the show notes for people so they can find your website and, and even come to one of your retreats and get in touch with you.
1: That's sweet. Of you. Yeah, I got one and coming up like a cross country ski type thing. And then I'm doing a really cool movement uh, retreat with this guy, Scott Davis uh, in Costa Rica. And that'd be fun, too. It'll be mixing up both, all the skills. and, and <laughs> You're all welcome to come anytime
0: cool. Thank you so much. He's super cool. I kid you not. After we were finished recording, I said, Hey Jeff, can we be friends? And he said, yes. Woohoo! So make sure you check out his website, check out meditation for fidgety skeptics. And also if you're enjoying the show, I would really appreciate it. If you could leave a five-star review on Apple podcasts, And take a screenshot and share the show with your friends. It's a really great way to get the word out, to help make an impact in other people's lives, and to show your support. So thank you so much for doing that. My first race of the year is coming up in just a couple of weeks. Out in the West Texas town of El Paso, there is a race January 20th. Last year or no, a couple years ago when I did this race, I actually rewrote that entire song and played it on my guitar on Instagram, making it more of like a weird owl, funny mountain biker song. So you have to go back in the archives away way to find that. But I thought that was pretty fun. And this race in El Paso is awesome. The community is great. And the course is a 50 mile mountain bike course and the rocks are, well, it's quite rocky and it's very technical. So that was probably the hardest 50 mile race I've ever done. And I'm really excited to go back. I feel excited about racing and training again. Last year was a big struggle for me because I was committing to doing too much and it's nice to feel rejuvenated and to get that mojo back. I'm also racing the 24 hours of Old Pueblo in February and I'm racing as a duo with my homie Gordon Wadsworth worth. He and I have done a lot of stage races together as a team. And the thing with racing 24 hours for duo is you trade off every lap, which means you trade off about every hour or so. So it's, it's a pretty tough format. You don't get to sleep. And the last time I did a duo format was with Jonathan Davis and it was the national championships one year and we won. So that was awesome. But I remember how hard it was. In fact, I think that duo racing is harder than racing solo. I won the 24-hour world championship in 2015 in the solo category, and I really do think that the duo was harder because you have to start and stop so many times, and you also have to basically ride at max effort every single time you go out, whereas with a 24-hour solo event, it's a steady grind. Hopefully, I'll see some of you guys out there. Thank you again for coming and listening to this podcast. I would love to hear what your takeaways are or what you found valuable. I love you guys and wishing you all the best success in your training and adventures. And we'll see you back here next week.